Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Isaiah 51, you can turn there. Last week we read the first couple verses of Isaiah 51 in order to sum up Isaiah 50 because as I keep stressing, there were no chapter or verse divisions in Isaiah's prophecies and it is necessary to understand them in the concurrent fashion that Isaiah had actually received and written these prophecies. So we're going to go back to verse 1, even though it'll sound familiar from last week, but this week we can dig into some of this a little bit more. This entire section that we are in right now is all about the suffering servant. And yet, as we have seen for several weeks, even in the suffering servant passages, there are all these promises to Israel. And so I'm going to yet again emphasize that God sovereignly made promises to Israel that he cannot go back on. And I know that makes me very repetitive and very redundant. And I know that I sound like a broken record. I sound like I'm beating a dead horse or I sound like I'm redundantly beating a dead record or something because of the amount of repetition. But the The amount of repetition that is coming out of my mouth is because that's how much repetition is in the text. And I think you've seen that over and over and over again. And so it is genuinely amazing to me, genuinely astounding, that people can ignore or forego these passages that are just so clearly directed to Israel and that include these magnificent promises from God, and especially when they are embedded right in the suffering servant passages. I mean, this is Isaiah 51. In Isaiah 52, we're going to start getting into direct references to Christ coming, living, dying. Isaiah 53, the most famous section in all of Isaiah. Usually when people go to Isaiah, that's because they're trying to get to Isaiah 53. That's where they put all the emphasis. And yet when you read the surrounding context, it is all about Israel and the promises to Israel. And then how those promises to Israel are going to be accomplished and satisfied through the suffering servant, through the Son of God. So it is unquestionable that the Son of God came to planet Earth that he came to his own and his own received him not, exactly like the prophets said was going to happen. So that is a reality of history. And so much of what we have read so far in Isaiah, we have found facts of history that actually occurred in time, in reality, that genuinely are part of human history on planet Earth. Well, then I continue to argue that if Christ actually did come and do the things that Isaiah 52 and 53 say about him, then Isaiah 51 is equally true. 
and Isaiah 50 and Isaiah 49 are all equally true. And I think we ignore that at our own peril because at some point we're saying that the perspicuity of the Bible is, is actually mud, that you can't really make sense out of it. Only those passages that are directly about Christ can we make any sense of and actually proclaim within the church. But all that other stuff about Israel, that, that's just hard to understand, so we're going to ignore that, and I don't agree with that. So with that bit of introduction out of the way, Isaiah 51 is redundantly again going to promise Zion a glorious future. So glorious that God says, I'm going to take your wilderness places and make them like the Garden of Eden. Well, we haven't seen that yet. And so we would have to conclude that these things have not occurred yet, but they still have to occur because God said them. Or we have to say that it's up to us to pick and choose which part of God's word are actually valid. Isaiah 51, verse 1. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn. Isaiah is not being schizophrenic at this point. This is, in fact, the same Isaiah who, in chapter 64, when we get there, is going to say that there's no one who calls on the name of the Lord. There's no one who arouses himself, who stirs himself up to, to take hold of thee. And we know that Paul gets a hold of that and in the book of Romans quotes it in order to point out that there's none who do good, no, not one, and that there's no one who understands God. So when Isaiah starts by saying that there is a group of people who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord, he is not contradicting himself. He's talking about different categories of people. If you look back at the history of Israel, God has always kept for himself a remnant. The same way that he said, I kept 7,000 to myself who did not bow the knee to Baal. Or the same way that when Israel was about to enter the promised land, and they sent in spies, and the spies came back with an evil report of the land and said, there are giants in the land, and we're like grasshoppers. God still had himself a Joshua and a Caleb who faithfully said, no, God said it. We're well able. Let's go get the land. So God has always had faithful people who were pursuing the law of God. You know, there is a, a King Josiah, and there is a King Uzziah. There are still King Davids in their history. There are still faithful men who pursued the law and the righteousness of God. And that's who he's referring to here. So you can't take Isaiah 64 and Isaiah 51 and cram them together and say, look, the Bible contradicts itself. You have to recognize the context, whom he's speaking to, and what the category is at that moment, and what the topic is at that moment. At this moment, Isaiah is addressing within Israel those people who are longing for the righteousness of God, who seek the Lord. And he says to them, remember how you got here. They're complaining because they've been taken out of their land. They're taken into Babylon where they're now going to serve for 70 years. And here is Isaiah saying, remember how you got here. Remember the God who saved you. Remember your own history. 
Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. So first the rock had to be dug out of the quarry and then the rock had to be carved away at until it was hewn down into the thing that the master builder wanted it to become. And so remember how you got here and here's how you're going to remember it. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who gave birth to you in pain. That's a really, really important phrase that you could just kind of read right past. Because he doesn't just say, look to Abraham your father. We know that even during Jesus' time, that was one of the defenses of the Israelites, especially of the Pharisees, who would say, we're descendants of Abraham. We're the children of Abraham. We're the sons of Abraham. But in this case, Isaiah points out Abraham and Sarah because Abraham had two sons. And so he is pointing out, you're not the son of the bondwoman. You're not the son of Hagar. You know, I don't usually talk about current events because I know these messages are going to go on to our website and that people are going to be listening to this at some point in the future. And I don't want them to be um, turned aside from the message because they're getting bound up in current events that aren't current anymore. And so I don't do politics or current events in these messages. But every once in a while, you'll hear me make a reference to really big things in our history. Like if I say 9-11, we all get it. We know what that is. That's an important moment. And so it's a good reference point. And I do think that what has happened right now in the Middle East over this past weekend, as the Taliban took over Afghanistan after 20 years of America being in there, spending a trillion dollars and all that blood and sweat of American lives, and then it fell in one weekend, I think that's a really significant moment that's going to live on in history and is going to have a ripple effect to it. And I have been watching different news sources really scratch their heads and say, why is it that all these nations for all these years, through all this time, have tried to make deals with the Taliban, have tried to uh, suppress the Taliban? I mean, you hold them down for 20 years, and then they just pop back up and become every bit as barbarous and murderous. And that's how they've always been. There are a group of people who aren't afraid to die, and you can't defeat an enemy who's not afraid to die. Well, I bring all that up to say, and there is a point to this. This all has to do with what we've just read, so follow along with me for a moment. You can't understand world politics if you don't understand your Bible. If you don't have a biblical worldview, you can't make sense of what's going on in the world right now, as is demonstrated by the talking heads on TV. And not just the talking heads, oh my goodness, the number of people from the government, including the president who is avoiding the topic, and the vice president who can't get out of the country fast enough so that she doesn't have to talk about Afghanistan. I mean, it's astounding the amount of confusion that's going on right now. Why is that? Well, it's because they don't have a biblical worldview. They have a political worldview, and therefore what's happening doesn't make sense to them. But let's see if I can help you make sense of it for just a moment. Turn back to Genesis 16 for a moment. We'll get back to Isaiah 51 in a moment. 
but I was really thinking about this today and thinking, you know, the answer is right here in the Bible, and yet people just don't take it seriously. But it is the Word of God, and therefore it is the correct answer to what's going on in the world and what is specifically going on in the Middle East at this very moment. Uh, Genesis 16, starting from verse 1, is about the fact that Sarah could not have children, had not given Abraham a son yet. And so she's going to give her handmaid, Hagar, to Abraham. And when Hagar finds herself pregnant, she finds herself also hated by Sarah. That's the backstory here. Chapter 16, verse 1, now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarah, or Sarai, said to Abraham, now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah, or Sarai, and after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as his wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress, Sarai, was despised in her sight. And so now you've got this competition between the women. Because now you've got Hagar going, that's right, I gave Abraham a son, something you couldn't do. That makes me better than you. That makes Sarai think, you're my handmaid. Hang on just a moment. Don't be pretending that you've got exclusive claim to my husband here. So verse 5, Sarai said to Abraham, may the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. Choose. Choose me, your long-term wife, or choose the one that's pregnant. Choose between us. Okay, that's a tough position for Abram to be in. But he sides with his long-term wife. Abram says to Sarah, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarah treated her harshly, and she, Hagar, fled from Sarah's presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur, and said to her, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarah. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress, and submit yourself to her authority. And moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, which means the Lord hears, because she was there crying out to the Lord, and the angel of the Lord found her in her flight away from her master. So you will call his name Ishmael, 
because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. And he, follow this now, he, Ishmael, the head of the Ishmaelite tribes and families, who are the Middle Eastern families, he will be a wild donkey of a man. You know, that's the NASB rendering. The American Standard Version goes with the older English word. Instead of donkey, goes with ass. He will be a wild ass man. That's a pretty fit description for what's going on right now in the Middle East. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all his brothers. His brothers are going to be those descendants through Isaac. He's going to live to the east of Isaac. Isaac gets Canaan. To the east of Canaan are all the Middle East tribes and the Middle East people who have still got us in such political turmoil to this very day. Why hasn't anybody been able to bring a lasting peace to the Middle East? Why did the Taliban show up all murderous and crazy overnight? Why is this happening in the world right now? First, you have to remember that the entirety of world history has to do with Israel. If you forget that, then you're not going to be able to make sense of the world. Secondarily, from the day Ishmael was born, it was said, He's going to be a wild donkey of a man, and everybody's hand's going to be against him, and his hand is against everybody. And here we are in highly sophisticated 2021 with supposedly the smartest adults in the room leading the country right now. Well, they're not leading. They're fleeing right now. And we don't understand what's happening in the world. Why did this happen? Why is this craziness going on? The Bible tells you but that means you have to go back and read the book of Genesis and you have to understand it the way it's written. And what it tells you is, this is the way it's always going to be. All of that is to say, when Isaiah 51.2 says, look to your father and to Sarah who gave birth to you, that's distinguishing one group of people from another group of people. And I don't care if that sounds Nationalist, I don't care if that sounds racist. Somebody out there will accuse me of that, I'm sure. But what it means is God has two family groups that came out of Abraham. And you Jews, you Israelites, who have everlasting promises from God and prophets from God and kings from God, you are the family line that came through the child of promise. You came down through Isaac, not through Ishmael. And yet the world scratches its head collectively and says, why is this? The answer is, God? <laughs> God said so? And God's word, yet again, this past weekend, with the whole world watching, proved itself to be true. And people didn't get it. It's amazing. All right, I know that was a slight left turn here. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave birth to you in pain. That means physical childbirth. She actually is the progenitor of all you people. She gave birth to you. When he was one, when he was one person in the land of Ur of the Chaldees, when he was only one person, I called him 
and then I blessed him, and then I multiplied him. And that's why to this day, you can find Jews in pretty much every country on the planet. You can't find other people groups that are mentioned in the Old Testament. And yet you can find a Jew in every country on the planet. Why? Because God has so blessed Abraham, though he was one person, look at the multitude that I have made him into. Here yet again, you look at the world, you look at the reality of the world, and you do see Jews in every country on the planet. What does that prove? It proves Isaiah was true. Isaiah is right. The word of God yet again says the absolute truth. So Isaiah is saying to the Jews, though they are in the Babylonian captivity, God has the ability to save you. We saw it last week. Is my arm so short that I can't save you? You don't think I can redeem you? I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. So think about who you are. Think about how you got here. And once you give that some serious consideration, you're going to understand that I'm still the same God who can do everything I said I was going to do. And after 70 years, I'm going to bring you back and I'm going to reestablish you. You're going to rebuild the temple. You're going to rebuild the walls. But then the promise goes far beyond that. In verse 3, indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. Here I go redundantly. Who's Zion? That's Jerusalem. Indeed, the Lord will comfort Jerusalem, and he will comfort all her waste places, and her wilderness will be made like Eden. This is a little bit of Hebrew parallelism we're going to engage in here, because the next verse says the same thing, just in different words. Her desert will be like the garden of the Lord. So Eden is the garden of the Lord. The waste places are the desert. So it's said twice. He's going to comfort her waste places. Her wilderness is going to be like Eden. And her desert is going to be like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found in her. Thanksgiving and the sound of happy people singing. Melody is going to be heard within the walls of Zion. Has that happened yet? We'd have to say no. And yet, it's a promise from God based on his already accomplished history, which is, consider Abraham and Sarah, and consider what I did. Now, since you can see that, since you know that, since that's provable human history, that to this very day in 2021 is still provable, based on that, The Lord then says, I'm going to comfort Jerusalem. I'm going to establish Jerusalem. I'm going to make it like the Garden of Eden. I'm going to make it like the Garden of the Lord. And her desert places are going to break out in joy and gladness, thanksgiving and the sound of melody. Just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it's not going to happen. It is a promise of God that it's going to happen. And he based the promise on, look at what I've already done. And there's not a person on the planet who can deny what he's already done. Even the Ishmaelites would have to admit that, yeah, the Jews exist. Of course, their hands are against the Jews. And, of course, they want to bomb them back into the Stone Age and drive them into the sea. But that has always been the conflict between Ishmael and Isaac. So the only way you can make any sense 
of the history of the world or the future of the world is to understand your Bible and to understand that God bases his future promises on observable facts of human history that to this very day we can still look at and say, yeah, it's right there. It's right there in front of us. And somehow people refuse to see it. So then God says, pay attention to me. And in a little bit of Hebrew parallelism again, the next line is, give ear to me. So twice now God has said, pay attention to me. Listen to what I'm telling you. He's trying to comfort these people who have been taken off into Babylon and convince them that he has not abandoned them. And starting in the next chapter, he's going to explain to them how they're going to go from being servants in Babylon to being reestablished in Israel to ultimately being the nation that all the Gentile nations are going to flow to. How's that going to be accomplished? Because God is going to send the suffering servant and the suffering servant is coming to fulfill everything that the law and the prophets said. So the book of Isaiah makes an astounding amount of sense if you read it the way that it is written and understand that the future prophecies are just as valid as the historic prophecies. And I didn't say that. God did. Which is why God pointed to Look at the quarry that I dug you out of. Look at the rock that you were hewn out of. In other words, look at the history of how you got here. And on that basis, trust me, listen to me, pay attention to me for your future. That's a really convincing argument that God is making. Yes, it is. Pay attention to me, O oh my people. Give ear to me, O oh my nation. Yet again, notice, they are in captivity. They are driven out of their land. Last week we saw, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement? This week it's him saying, you are my people and you are my nation. You're my people. That's why I'm going to do all this for you and make you these wonderful future promises. For a law will go forth from me, and I will set my justice for a light to all peoples. When Jesus gave the model prayer, after we identify who it is we're praying to, our Father who is in heaven, whose name is separate, your name is hallowed, the first petition is, your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus said, when you pray to the Father, pray that we're praying for your righteousness to break out on the planet. We want your will done on the planet the same way it is done in heaven. Here is God making that exact promise. I'm going to set my justice for a light to all the Gentiles, to all the nations. My righteousness is going to break out on planet Earth. And Jesus says, when you go and pray to him, pray for that. Because Isaiah has already promised it. And then he says, a law will go forth from me. And we have to talk about that for just a moment. Because too many of the commentaries that I have read assume that the law that is going to go out to the Gentile nations is the law of Moses. 
In fact, that is one of the foundational ideas behind post-millennial reconstructionism. They say that it is going to be the law of Moses, that somehow the church of Jesus Christ that was saved by grace is going to be implementing on the governments of the world so that the Gentile nations of the world are going to be obedient to the law of Moses. I don't think that's what Isaiah is getting at here because the law of Moses already existed. And it didn't save anybody. And it didn't accomplish righteousness even within Israel. And so thinking that imposing that law on the Gentile nations, the rebellious Gentile nations, the wild donkey man people, I don't know how much sense that makes considering that it's never been successful in bringing about righteousness. And yet in context, God says that there is a law that's going to go forth from me. I think that's why it's so important that Moses said that God was going to give the people of Israel a prophet like me. And then he says, listen to him and to him the gathering of the peoples will be. He's talking about Jesus, the new and better, higher lawgiver. And then Jesus walks on the planet and walks around saying things like, okay, you've heard it said. And then he quotes something from Moses and says, now, but I say, because he is that new, higher, better lawgiver. And that is why even Paul, when he was accused of being antinomian, antinomos, being against the law of Moses, he argues that when he was among those without law, that he was like one without law. And then he says, not that I'm without law, because I'm under the law of Christ. I'm under the nomos. I'm under the teaching of Christ. So he refers to the teaching of Christ as that new, higher, better law. And that is a teaching, a nomos, a law, that actually does accomplish redemption and salvation to everybody who comes to God through the teaching of Jesus. So I think what Isaiah is getting at here about there being a law that will go forth from God to the Gentile nations, I believe he's talking about the new covenant, higher, better law in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Because the law of Moses never saved anybody. So advancing that to the nations, what's that going to do for them? A law, a higher, better law, a new covenant law is going to go forth from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth. That's all the language of Christ. That's the language of, I'm going to send my son, and if his son is that righteousness and salvation that he's talking about here, then he is near. He's coming in a few hundred years. By the way, notice the language of, my righteousness is near, even though it is still several hundred years away. We have to understand that that's near in God's perspective, not near from a human perspective. And you got to remember that when you get into the New Testament or you get into the book of Revelation and you see all this language of near and quickly. That is still language that is being used by God from God's perspective. He can say that his righteousness and his salvation 
is going to go forth from him and that it's already close by, it's already near, and my arms will judge the peoples. The NASB translates that as my arms, plural. You're going to see the arm of the Lord referred to two more times in this very chapter, and it's going to be singular, the arm of the Lord. As a consequence, some translations translate this verse not as plural, but as singular, the arm of the Lord, so that it is a direct reference to Christ. In the next two repetitions of that phrase, the arm of the Lord, you're going to see that it's obviously Christ. It's a direct reference to Christ. My righteousness is near. That's going to be the coming of Christ. My salvation has gone forth. That's Christ. And my arms or my arm will judge the people. Well, we know that's Christ because he's the one that's going to sit on the white throne judgment. And the coastlands will wait for me. I told you before that any reference to the isles or to the coastlands means the furthest away that they could conceive of geographically from Jerusalem. And that the people even there would be waiting for God and his righteousness. So now you can see why Jesus would say, pray that the will of God is done on earth the way it's done in heaven. That's going to be when all the nations, all the Gentiles, even the furthest away of the peoples are going to see the righteousness of God break out on planet earth. For my arm, they will wait expectantly. Okay, if the arm of the Lord there is Jesus, then the coastlands are waiting expectantly for the coming of Christ. Why? Because he is righteousness. Because he is salvation. Because he is redemption. Because he is the accomplishment of all the things that the law of Moses simply could not accomplish. He's the one that's actually going to accomplish salvation, redemption, the gathering of the people, the reestablishment of Israel. All that's going to be accomplished through the might, the strength, the arm of the Lord, which is Jesus Christ. So now God gives you an example. Lift up your eyes to the sky. Then look to the earth beneath. For the sky that you look up at is going to vanish like smoke. And the earth that you look down at will wear away like a garment. And the inhabitants of the earth will die in like manner. Everything passes away. You go read it, the writings of Peter as he talks about everything, all the elements of this earth are going to burn away in a fervent heat. Everything is going to burn in the conflagration of God before he makes the new heavens and the new earth. And so even back here in Isaiah, he says, look at the sky, look at the earth. This is all going to be destroyed. The earth is going to be worn out like a garment. The inhabitants of the earth are going to die in a like manner. But my salvation should be forever. Unlike the wearing out planet, unlike the wearing out sky, and unlike all the inhabitants of the earth, salvation through his arm, genuine redemption, is going to be forever. And my righteousness shall not wane. What a great old English word that we don't use much anymore. We used to talk about the, the tide and the moon waxing and waning. 
you don't see it much anymore. What it means is it's never going to fade away. The righteousness of God, once established, never goes away, never fades away. And the salvation of God is going to be forever. Okay, so now knowing that, and knowing that God has said, everything on this planet is going to grow old, it's going to decay, it's going to wear out, everybody's going to die. Me, me alone, my salvation that I accomplished through my son, my arm of strength, and my righteousness shall never wane. So then listen to me, you who know righteousness. How would they know righteousness? They would have the law of God. And those who are paying attention to the law of God and who are paying attention to the prophets of God, who are listening to the written word of God, listen to me, you who know righteousness, a people in whose heart is my law, do not fear the reproach of man, neither be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them like a garment, the grub worm will eat them like wool, but my righteousness shall be forever and my salvation to all generations. He has said that twice now. So he's comparing planet Earth and the inhabitants of planet Earth and the actual planet and the actual sky around the planet. And he's saying, none of that's going to last. But my righteousness, my salvation, my redemption is eternal and it's going to last forever. So now, who do you respect? Who do you pay attention to now? Knowing that. Knowing that everybody on the planet's going to die. And knowing that even the earth, there were so many people at that time and today, worshiping the planet, worshiping the earth, thinking that Mother Earth was going to protect them. Or that something in the sky or something in the heavens or astrology, something physical, something that was made by God, that that's what they were going to worship and that's what was going to help them and save them. And God has taken all of that and said, all of that is going to be destroyed. I'm the only one who's going to last. My salvation, my redemption, my righteousness do not wear out. So now why are you so worried about what other people can do to you? You get the contrast? Because mm -hmm. that's going to be the argument. The moth will eat them like a garment, and the grub will eat them like wool. But my righteousness shall be forever, and my salvation to all generations. And then this appears to be Isaiah speaking on behalf of the people of Israel. Once they understand this truth, they now respond to God by asking God to do what he said he's going to do. Awake. Awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, in the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab into pieces, who pierced the dragon? That word Rahab right there. That is not Rahab. That's not a name of Rahab the harlot. Rahab was a sea monster, a mythical sea monster who was known as the god of chaos, who was oftentimes used as a typification of Egypt. And that's 
who they're referring to and saying, even the God of chaos, you're the one that cut him up to pieces. So you're the dominant of all gods. You're the one who cut Rahab into pieces. You're the one who killed the dragon. You pierced the dragon. And then the direct reference to Egypt. Was it not you who dried up the sea and the waters of the great deep and made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over? Well, that's a direct reference to the Red Sea as the people were departing from Egypt. And if they know that, if they can recall that, if they can look at their own history with God, then that should give them every confidence that he is going to restore them out of Babylon and that he has the power and the ability to restore Jerusalem and restore them to such a degree that they become like the Garden of Eden. So they should have this hope for the future because even though men may be their oppressors in this lifetime, the oppressors cannot stop the plan of God and the ultimate determination of God to make Israel this place of happiness and protection and song and melody and joy and the gardens of God. So they should have hope. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over? So that the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion. You get the connection? Now, by the way, this is the same Isaiah who predicts that God is going to gather his people, Israel, all 12 tribes, a second time and bring them back to the land of Israel. Here I go with my broken record beating dead horses thing again because the promises just continue over and over again in this great consistency that God uses Egypt and his deliverance of the children of Israel out of Egypt. He keeps pointing back to that to say, all the other stuff I said I'm going to do for you, I'm going to do for you because I'm the God who did that. So why don't you trust me? Because you're afraid of men? What can men do for you? They're going to die. I'm not going to die. They're going to lie to you and oppress you. I'm going to bless you and redeem you. And that everlastingly. So where is your confidence? Where is your faith? The ransomed of the Lord are going to return and come with joyful shouting to Zion. And everlasting joy will be on their heads. Has that happened yet? No, we'd have to say no, that has not happened yet. Does it have to happen? Because if you say that that's the promise of God concerning Israel and Jerusalem, but that's not going to happen, then how can you have any confidence that Isaiah 52 and 53 are valid? Everlasting joy is going to be on their heads. They will obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing is going to flee away from them. I even I, now God's speaking in the first person again. It's almost like Isaiah is recording a conversation between God and Israel. And Israel responds and God says, I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of men who die? Remember what he just said. I don't die. I'm everlasting. My righteousness is forever. My redemption is eternal 
Why are you afraid of men who die? And of the Son of Man, who is like the grass, that you have forgotten the Lord your maker. In other words, Israel, Judah in particular, had become so afraid of Nebuchadnezzar, his armies, now their enslavement in Babylon. They were thinking, God has abandoned us altogether. That's why last chapter he had to say, where's the bill of your mother's divorcement? I haven't given up on you. I'm just punishing you. Now here he is saying, why are you afraid of your oppressors? Why are you afraid of men? They die. I don't. And after they're gone, my promises to you are still good. So trust me. Listen to me. Pay attention to me, not them. I, even I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that are afraid of man who dies and of the sons of man who are made like grass? that you have forgotten the Lord, your maker. Now you understand why he said, remember the rock from which you were hewn. Remember the quarry you were dug out of. I made you. You're here right now in this situation because I made it. I made heaven and earth, and I made the situation you're living in right now, and somehow you have forgotten that and forgotten me out of fear of your oppressors. I'm the one who stretched out the heavens. I'm the one who laid the foundation of the earth that you fear continually all day long because of the fury of the oppressor as he makes ready to destroy you. But where is the fury of the oppressor? Where is this magnificent fury of people who die? What about the fury of the Lord? What about the righteous anger of a holy everlasting God? Given the option between angry people who die or the righteous, holy wrath of God, which one should you actually be in fear of? So you should fear continually all day long because of the fury of the oppressor as he makes ready to destroy. But where is the fury of the oppressor? The exile. That's the Judahites who have been driven out of their land that are now in Babylon. They are the exile that, that Isaiah is writing to. And he says, the exile will soon be free. They're not going to die in the dungeon, nor will their bread be lacking. Why? Because I am the Lord, your God, who stirs up the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. I'm in charge of the armies of heaven. I'm in charge of the armies of earth. I am the God of all the hosts of heaven and all the angelic horde. I am in charge of absolutely everybody, and I am Yahweh, your Adonai, your God. And look at all the things I do. I stir up the sea. Its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is my name. And I have put my words in your mouth. And I have covered you with the shadow of my hand to establish the heavens, to found the, the foundation of the earth, and to say to Zion, you are my people.
I think that seems like a good place to stop for the night. We'll pick up at verse 17 next week with rouse, rouse yourself, arise Jerusalem. This seems like a good place to start next week. And then we'll get into the first part of chapter 52 because you don't get very far into chapter 52 before you get to break forth and shout joyfully together because your waste places of Jerusalem, the Lord has comforted his people and he has redeemed Jerusalem. And right on the heels of all those promises to Jerusalem, behold, my servant will prosper and he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, just as many were astonished at you, my people. So his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. That is a direct reference to Jesus Christ that was actually accomplished in human time and history. And it comes right on the heels of the Lord restores Zion, break forth, shout joyfully together. You cannot extricate the promises made to Israel and Jerusalem and Zion from the promise of Christ to come. Isaiah combines them inextricably, and you cannot untie those two from each other without doing damage to the text. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.